Today's scripture comes from Luke chapter 12, 13-21. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, Watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, What shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, This is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, You have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God. The grass withers and flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Happy Easter, everyone. My name is Aaron, and I am one of the pastors here at Exilic. And I really want to thank you for tuning in today because Easter is the most important day of the year, even more so than Christmas. And so the fact that we're not together is really, really sad. Uh, and these conditions are not ideal socially at all. Uh, but even though these conditions are not ideal socially, I do think that these conditions are very ideal spiritually. Because the message of Easter is all about life after death. And if there is one thing that we are being flooded with right now, it's statistics about how many people are sick and how many people are dying. And I actually think that this sort of confrontation with our own mortality and death is really a healthy thing, not an unhealthy thing. And here's what I mean by that. Uh, throughout history, um, people have always had an awareness of their own mortality and, and death and the brevity of life. A part of it was because life expectancy was like 40 years. And so people were killed either by disease, a plague, starvation, or war. Uh, if you think of even about uh, colonial times in the U.S., one out of three kids uh, died. And so parents were constantly burying their children. But you know what? Children were also burying their parents because their parents didn't live that much longer than them. And so throughout history, people have always had this sort of um, confrontation, this uncomfortable confrontation with death. But when you think about us as modern Western people, we've largely been shielded away from death. And a part of it is because of modern medicine. Uh, modern, modern medicine has allowed us to live double what people used to live. And so we, we now live not to 40 years old, but to 80. And when people do die, uh, they die safely in hospitals. And oftentimes we don't see them dying we only see them dead. And when we do see them dead, it's only four seconds maybe at a funeral. And so as modern Westerners, we haven't really had this uh, confrontation with death or our own mortality. And as a result of that, there's this sort of sense in which we indirectly think that we're immortal or invincible. But because of the cultural moment now that we face, uh, for the very first time as modern Westerners, we're we're having to have these conversations and we're being inundated and flooded with suffering, pain, sickness, and death. And that might not be a bad thing. 
In Psalm 90, for example, it says, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. And what this psalmist is saying is that when we understand the fragility of life, the brevity of life, that in many ways our life is like steam that rises out of a cup of morning coffee and then vanishes, the better we understand our own fragility and brevity, the wiser we become. Indirectly, what the psalm is also saying is that when we think that we're immortal, invincible, unstoppable, that that breeds a heart of foolishness. And so what I want to take a look at today for our Easter sermon is Luke chapter 12. And at first glance, Luke chapter 12, it seems like it's only about money and greed. But underlying the story of money and greed is another story. And so when we take a look, look at Luke chapter 12, there are actually two stories taking place. One is a true story and one is a parable. And the context of the true story, it goes like this. There are, in terms of its setting, there are thousands of people that are following Jesus. In fact, in the beginning of Luke chapter 12, it says that there are so many people following Jesus that people are trampling on one another to hear what he has to say. And as he's teaching the crowds, the multitude of people, all of a sudden, one person stands up and interjects. And this is what the person says in verse 13 and 14. Someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And Jesus replied, man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? And so the reason why this man asked Jesus to be a judge and an arbiter is because in the first century world, rabbis knew the law very, very well. And so rabbis would routinely engage in civil cases. But notice what Jesus says here. Who appointed me a judge and arbiter between you? And what Jesus is saying here is that this is not why I've come. And instead of addressing the man's specific issues, he pivots away from the man and he addresses the disciples and the crowd. And he uses this man's story as a pedagogical opportunity to teach them something else. And in verse 15, he says, Then he said to them, the crowd and the disciples, Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in abundance of possessions. When Jesus talks about all kinds of greed, usually when we think about the word greed, the first picture that comes into our mind is money. But the reason why Jesus talks about all kinds of greed is because we can be greedy about more than just money. We can be greedy with our time and how we use it. We can be greedy with our skills and talents not sharing it with other people, but only using it for ourselves, we can be greedy with our possessions. And what Jesus says here is to watch out and be on guard against our greed. In other words, there's something very subtle and hidden about our greed. Tim Keller is a pastor here in the city, and he's been ministering here for 25, 30 years. And he says that during the course of his 25, 30 year ministry, not one person has ever come to him and asked for counseling about their greed. And similarly, not one person at Exilic has ever come up to me and confessed their greed and said, I need really, you know, I need a lot of help with it. And so what that means then is this, either none of us are greedy, or it means that all of us are greedy. And chances are all of us are greedy because there's something about greed that's very disguised and very camouflaged. And so what Jesus does here is that he doesn't address the man's specific story 
But what he addresses is the spirit behind this man's story. Because the biggest problem that this man has isn't the fact that his brother isn't sharing the inheritance with him. The biggest problem that this man has is that he cares a lot more about his life before death than his life after death. That he is so consumed with the bigger and the better in the here and now that he doesn't care about the things that eternally and ultimately matter. And so Jesus tells this parable to the man and to the crowd and to the disciples. And he tells this parable about a man who has five eyes but is completely blind. And if you read with me, verse 16 to 18, it says this. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store my surplus grain. And so in this parable, Jesus shines a floodlight on this man's uh, greed and how consumed and self-centered he is with himself, with the amount of times he uses the word I or the word my. And sometimes it's hard not to be so consumed with yourself when you are successful. Uh, even when it comes to today's metrics, we base the value and worth of someone based upon you know, how much money they make or how many possessions that they have. And it was no different back then. But when you take a look at this story, Jesus doesn't criticize the man in this parable for having a lot. Rather, he criticizes the man for hoarding a lot. And we have to be careful here because when it comes to money, the Bible never says that having lots of money is a bad thing. Rather, it says that it's the love of money that is a bad thing. And so just because you're rich, it doesn't mean that you're greedy. Just because you're poor, it doesn't mean that you're generous. You can be rich and generous. You can be poor and be very, very greedy and stingy. But when we take a look at this man in this parable, he is a rich man that is very greedy because he's only talking about storing things for himself, saving for himself. He's talking about tearing down his barns to build bigger ones for the sake of his own kingdom. And so the deeper question here isn't who is greedy, because we can all be greedy. The deeper question here is why is this man greedy? And one of the reasons why the man in this parable is greedy is because he is a materialist. And materialists believe that this material world is the only world that there is. Uh, Kathy Keller, who is the wife of Tim Keller, gives a good definition of what a uh, materialist looks like. And she says this. Most people think materialism is a desire for many things or expensive things or unique things or all three. But the truth is you can be a materialist at any income level or none. All that's required is you look to the material comforts of this world for your happiness. Similarly, materialism doesn't only express itself in a desire for enormous quantity or superb quality of this world's goods but by locating happiness in the things of this world. You may have no craving for designer fashion or statement jewelry or cars or yachts or other symbols of elite status, but ask yourself this, how much of my contentment is based on this world providing me with fill in the blank? Fitting into my size six clothes, being able to take the family out to Shake Shack without counting pennies, the affection of a pet, not losing the light and view from my windows because a new building is blocking them, and so on. Losing such commonplace comforts will always cause a degree of regret. 
but will it overthrow your happiness? If so, you are a materialist. Materialism simply means that your happiness, joy, contentment, and satisfaction is tied to something in this material world. A salary however small, status however low, possessions however modest or threadbare. If our hearts are inordinately tied to these things beyond just the affection we feel for the familiar, then we are materialists. And since this world is passing away, Materialism is in the same category as building your house on the sand or eating food that does not satisfy. It is doomed to ultimate failure. The old proverb, you can't take it with you, could be expanded to read, you can't even hold on to it in this world. When sorrow or age or other loss robs us of those material comforts, we materialists have nothing left. I confess my own materialism. My furniture may be decades old, my wardrobe ordered from catalogs, my carpets unraveling at the edges and bare in the middle, but they are mine. And the life I've woven around me is one I don't care to have changed in even the slightest particular. And I know that uh, in many ways that this uh, pandemic has been a curse to many of us, but I do think that it has given us one great gift. And whenever we face suffering and trials, um, suffering in many ways is like a smelling salt that wakes us up to have better perspective on life. Uh, two years before the great Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon died, he once said this, gold is nothing but dust to a dying man. Uh, someone a little bit more contemporary, Jim Carrey, he once said, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so they can see that it's not the answer. And if we had the time, I could probably give you a hundred more quotes of uh, people that reach the upper stratosphere and echelons of our society, but they realize that nothing in this world could really satisfy them the way that they were anticipating. Um, Ernest Becker, who won the Pulitzer Prize for his book, The Denial of Death, which he wrote a few days, uh, decades ago. And the reason why Becker called his book The Denial of Death is because we as Americans, we have a PhD in denying death because we don't want to be we don't want to talk about it at all. And because we sort of deny death, we, we, we lose perspective on life. And Becker goes on to say that, and he's, he's not religious, but Becker goes on to say that uh, because we don't want to be confronted with our own mortality, what we do is we, we engage in immortality projects. And so it could be um, getting married and having kids as our lasting legacy. It could be you donating all of this money to a university so a building is named after you. But what Becker says is that we all engage in immortality projects because we don't want to be confronted with our own mortality. And Becker goes on to say that our immortality projects are futile. They're foolish because at the end of the day, suffering, pain, and death has the ability to take those things uh, away from us. Uh, there was once a billionaire who died and someone said, what did he leave behind? And the other person said, he left behind everything. And so here's the point, when it comes to a materialistic worldview, either you will decay first, or all of your possessions will decay first. But death has the power in a materialistic worldview to take all of those things away from us and rob us. But here in this story, in this parable, this man is not only a materialist, 
but he's also a hedonist. And here's the difference. Materialists value a lot of their possessions, but hedonists value pleasure. So hedonists would say, what good is having all this money if I'm not happy? Because happiness and pleasure are the main goal. And so here, the man in the parable not only engages in a materialistic immortality project, having a lot of things, tying himself into the, all the things of this world, but he also engages in a hedonistic uh, immortality project. And in verse 19, he says this, And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. Now, the phrase eat, drink, and be merry was a very common expression in ancient times. And it was often coupled with another part. Let's eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. And so here the logic is uh, life is short, time is running out. And so the goal of life then is to squeeze as many hedonistic pleasures into this life as much as possible. So whether it's decadent food, decadent drink, sex, travel, whatever it is, the point, the goal of a hedonistic life is to squeeze as many things into this life possible because time is running out. And when I think about hedonism, I think about Marcus Person. Now, you might not know who Marcus Person is, but Marcus Person is a uh, Swedish engineer and designer who is one of the co-founders of the game Minecraft, which sold to Microsoft for over two and a half billion dollars, which he sold to them at the age of 35. And Person goes on to say that he never wanted to be that rich guy that never spent his money. And so spend his money he would. In fact, his, his wedding wasn't only one day, it was one year long. He was known for spending up to $180,000 a night at uh, Vegas nightclubs, and he outbid Jay-Z and Beyonce for uh, his Beverly Hill Mansion, their poultry $50 million for his $70 million. And here is a description of what his house looks like in LA. The 23,000 square foot mansion includes an infinity pool with iPad controlled fountains, 15 bathrooms, an 18 seat movie theater, three high definition televisions that can uh, screen panoramic views of Los Angeles from the roof, vodka and tequila bars, a replica of James Dean's motorcycle, cases of Dom Perignon, and a 16 car garage. The house came complete with its own candy room. And I actually Googled this house, and if you take a look at it, it, it looks like the home of Tony Stark, Iron Man for the movie uh, Avengers. And yet, despite having all the hedonistic pleasures that a person could imagine in this life, this is what person says in a tweet. Hanging out in Ibiza with a bunch of friends. Uh, Ibiza is an island off the um, eastern coast of Spain in the Mediterranean. And he says, hanging out in Ibiza with a bunch of friends and partying with famous people, able to do whatever I want. And I've never felt more isolated. The problem with getting everything is you run out of reasons to keep trying and human interaction becomes impossible due to imbalance. And so here what persons is experiencing is, is this. Uh, sometimes people are so poor, all they have is money. They have no meaning. They have no purpose and they have no satisfaction or contentment in their life. And in one of her books on contentment, Melissa Kruger talks about discontent hedonistic people. 
And discontent hedonistic people are is is like a person that is dehydrated, parched, and thirsty standing before an ocean. And because they're so dehydrated, they get a bucket and they pick up all of this ocean water and they're ready to drink it and you say no don't do it and the reason why you tell them to stop is because if they drink that ocean water they're only going to be thirstier if they and if they drink enough of it they're going to die ocean water is really good to look at it's great to swim in good to surf on but it was never meant to quench our thirst and similarly kruger goes on to say that we have an eternal thirst and oftentimes we look to certain things to quench that eternal thirst that we feel, but it doesn't do the job. It quenches us, uh, our thirst temporarily, but not the kind of permanent thirst that we need. Um, I was listening to a podcast between the actor Russell Brand and a theologian and scientist at Oxford named Alistair McGrath, who's one of my favorite thinkers. And in the uh, Russell Brand podcast, I mean, you would think that these two are an unlikely duo, but they actually have a excellent conversation. And Russell Brand goes on to say, my fear of atheism is that if there is nothing else, then why not materialism? Why not individualism? Without a deeper truth, for me, there is only hedonism, only indulgence. And Alistair McGrath goes on to say, what we need is a way of thinking that says, no, you're a part of something bigger. You need to go figure out what that is and transcend yourself. Stop making the universe about you. The paradox of hedonism, the simple fact that pleasure cannot satisfy, is another instance of this curious phenomenon. Even in our contentment, we still feel in need of something that is indefinably missing. It is as if God leaves us with a certain weariness with nature that can be satisfied only by pressing on beyond nature to its source and goal in God himself. If meditation on the goodness of God does not drive us to him, perhaps weariness with the pleasures of this world will have the intended effect. Pleasure, beauty, personal relationships all seem to promise so much, and yet when we grasp them, we find that we were still seek what we were still seeking still lies beyond them. There is a divine dissatisfaction in human experience that prompts us to ask whether there is anything that may satisfy the desires of the human heart. And so the point here is that temporary pleasures lead to temporary happiness, which is why God says to the man in this parable in verses 20 to 21, but God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God. The word fool is a person that is out of touch with reality. And in this particular scenario, this man's materialism and hedonism blinds him from seeing spiritual reality. He is far more concerned with his temporal future than he is about his eternal future. And so here he is storing up all of his wealth, saving up all of these different things, but that very night, his life would be taken from him and his plans for the good life are about to be disrupted. And so this is what philosophers would refer to as the absurdity of life, uh, whether it's Friedrich Nietzsche or Albert Camus, Jean-Paul Sartre. The absurdity of life is that you can do everything right and just like that, uh, things can go completely wrong. 
And yet, even though life in many ways is very, very absurd, uh, there's something very sacred that, that we do when it comes to life and death. Uh, when you think about plants and animals, uh, when plants die and animals die, they never have a burial ritual or a ceremony. Uh, it's only people that have burial rituals and ceremonies for the dead. And when people do die, we say things like they're looking down on me or they're in a better place. Now, why do we say things like that when it's not even coherent with our own secular scientific worldview? We say these types of things because deep down in our core, we want to believe that death is not the final winner. We want to believe that our love for one another can outlast and is, is stronger than, than the power of death, that our lives end with a happy ending rather than a Shakespearean tragedy. And that, that longing that we have deep down in our core for that kind of happy ending, I want to say is a good thing, it's not a bad thing. Uh, recently, John Krasinski, one of my favorite characters in The Office, he started a new show called SGN, Some Good News. And I love the premise of the show because he wants to bring people good news in the midst of all the bad news that we're surrounded by right now. And this, the stories about are about people helping one another. But the message of Easter is the greatest story of all because it's not just about people helping one another. It's about God saving us. And the message of Easter is about God, the immortal God, becoming very mortal. And why does the immortal God become mortal? Well, in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, 8 9, it says, Jesus Christ, though he was rich, became poor, so that through his poverty, we might become rich. So what could Jesus possibly lose for his status to go from rich to poor? Well, it can't be in reference to money because money has no value or worth to him. And so what it's in reference to is not his savings account. What it's in reference to is his moral account. Every single one of us is a deeply flawed sinner. We are more greedy than we think we are with all kinds of things. We're materialistic, we're hedonistic, we're selfish, and the list goes on and on and on. But what happens on the cross is that all of our immorality is transferred to Jesus. So it's as though he lived our life. And all of his perfect morality is transferred to us as if we had lived his life. You know, in religion, it says if you're a good person, if you do enough good things, you can earn your way to nirvana, paradise, some kind of reincarnation. But in Christianity, it says you will never be good enough. You're too bad. But I will earn the way for you. And so all of his morality is transferred to us. But Jesus not only saves us from our sins and forgives all of our sins, but he also gives us eternal life. Because what good is it for our sins to be forgiven if we were to just die? Irma Bombeck, uh, she used to write humor columns many years ago. She says, you know, my life is dominated by dirt. At this end of the house, there's dirt. There's dirt in the bathroom, dirt on the plates in the kitchen, dirt in the rug. So I work to get rid of the dirt. And by the time I get to the other end of the house, the first end of the house is dirty again. It never ends. And in the end, after all of these years of struggling against the dirt, what do I get? Six feet of dirt. So the resurrection says that death doesn't have to be the final answer over our lives. That the worst thing that can happen to us is actually the best thing that can happen to us as well. Now, I realize that uh, there are some of you that are listening that might be very skeptical with what I'm saying, and you should be. 
but I want you to turn your skepticism also into investigation. Uh, Tim Keller says that if you were to get a uh, letter in the mail and it had very professional letterheading and it said that you inherited a few million dollars, uh, you would probably think that it's a scam. But if the letterheading was professional enough, you would at least inquire about it. And the reason why you would inquire about it is because the offer is so great. If it's just a few bucks, you wouldn't care. You'd probably throw it in the trash. And similarly, when it comes to the resurrection, this offer is the greatest, it's, it's eternal life. There's nothing greater than that. And while you might be skeptical, because the offer is so great, you should at least look into it. And that's what it really means to be rich in God. To be rich in God means not to, not to invest in things that are temporary, but to invest in things that are eternal. Not to invest in things that are just physical, but to also invest in things that are spiritual. And so you have an opportunity on this Easter Sunday to either live the rest of your life like the man in this parable who tried to squeeze as many materialistic, hedonistic things into this life as much as possible because time is running out and this world is the only life there is. Or you can live like the life of Jesus who gave his life away. What we believe about tomorrow shapes how we live today. And we believe that there is an eternity waiting for us. And therefore, the way that we ought to live our lives is not like Monopoly, but more like Uno. You know what you do in Monopoly to win the, the game? Is you try to collect and hoard as many things as much as possible, and then you win. But you know, in Uno, to, the way to win the game is by giving everything away. And by giving everything away, you actually end up winning, which is why Jesus says, whoever saves their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life from me will end up saving it. Let's pray together.